Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but were struggling to follow him. You see, at the time, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. Sacrifices were being offered. Feast days were being observed. The religion of Judaism was at its zenith. Jewish friends and family were scoffing out loud at these crazy Christians. Why would anyone leave behind the security blanket of ancient traditions and institutions to follow this no-name preacher from Galilee? And pressure was mounting. Some of these Hebrew believers had already been banished from their families. Their land and property had been confiscated. Many of them had been excommunicated from their synagogue. The heat was on. The message was renounce Jesus or be banished from the community. And these believers were being tempted to deny Christ, to return to the cozy confines of Jewish religion. This letter was written to affirm and strengthen the faith of these teetering believers. The book of Hebrews explains that Jesus is better than Judaism. He's better than the Old Testament prophets and the angels and the law and Moses and Joshua and the Jewish priesthood. He works in a better temple, makes better promises, has established a better covenant, offers a better sacrifice. God in Jesus has replaced the fixtures of Judaism with faith in our Lord. And the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is don't go back. Hold on to your faith. You've left religion. Now hold on to your faith. Trust in Jesus. Hebrews teaches that Jesus is better than any other way of life. Be proud of Jesus. We should be too. Don't back down from what you believe. One sidebar before we plunge in, since no author is mentioned, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, there are a whole host of fascinating speculations. Scholars have argued for Timothy, Philip, Barnabas, Apollos, even Aquila and Priscilla. Some suggest Paul wrote it in Hebrew and Luke translated it into Greek. Who wrote Hebrews? Only God knows for sure. Sort of like your hairdresser. Only God knows for sure. But here's the important point. It really doesn't matter who held the pen, for it was the Holy Spirit who inspired what was written. Ultimately, the author of this book was God. Well, Hebrews begins with the most fundamental fact in the universe. God. God is. You know, the symmetry, the order that we see in nature, that we see in creation, testifies of a creator. Design necessitates a designer. You don't get order and symmetry from randomness and chance. God is. The founder of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, once wrote, The undevout astronomer is mad. Simple laws of probability explain how ludicrous it is to suggest the universe sprung up from chance and chaos. You know, just take ten quarters. Ten quarters. Take a magic marker and number them one through ten. The odds of pulling out one, the number one, is, of course, one in ten. The odds of pulling out one and two in order is one in a hundred. 
The odds of pulling out numbers 1, 2, and 3 in order would be 1 in 1,000. And the odds of pulling out numbers 1 through 10 in sequence would be 1 in 10 billion. Now realize the simplest living cells consist of strings of amino acids. The, the most basic life forms still require 55 amino acids to string together in an exact sequence. Thus the odds of these chemicals emerging by chance from a primordial soup in order 1 through 55 to form a living cell is beyond any kind of reasonable speculation. It's ludicrous. Our planet and its burgeoning life is best explained by the existence of a creator. This is why the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, God is. But verse 1 also conveys the second most fundamental fact in all the universe. God has spoken. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. The God who is, is not silent. He's spoken into time and space. He's declared His will to humanity. Philosopher Christopher Morley once wrote, My theology, briefly, is that the universe was dictated but not signed. In other words, God exists but He remains incognito. He refuses to play His cards. He stays mum. You see, the atheist denies God exists. An agnostic refuses to believe he's spoken. But the writer of the book of Hebrews assures us God is and he has spoken. Verse 1 in a Greek Bible uses the terms polymeros and polytropos, which literally mean in many portions and in many ways. God spoke through many mouthpieces and by many methods in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In the Old Testament, God's revelation unfolded bit by bit, portion by portion, like the unrolling of a scroll. Each of the prophets penned a successive line in the unfolding drama. Isaiah told us about the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah, the judgment of the Lord. Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord. Daniel talked about the Lord's sovereignty. Hosea, the love of the Lord. Zechariah, the faithfulness of the Lord. God revealed himself in many portions, but also in many ways. The prophets were versatile in their deliveries. Some preached. Others acted out object lessons. Some did miracles. Some interpreted dreams. In times past, God spoke through many mouths and through many methods. But, the writer says... He has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. God's revelation no longer comes to us piecemeal. Today, God has packaged all He's wanted to say to you and me in one divine revelation. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's complete and final word to men. If you want to hear what God has to say to the world today and understand His will, then behold His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. The creation came through Jesus, belongs to Jesus, 
and it'll be Jesus' creation in the end. And here in verse 3 is an explanation of the nature of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. See, this is why Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Just examine his nature. He is the brightness of God's glory. You see, Jesus is to God's glory what a flashbulb is to the light in this room. Jesus is the full blaze, the concentration of God's glory. Psalm 72 verse 19 shouts, Let all the earth be filled with God's glory. But take that glory that's spread out over all the earth. Glory the entire universe can't contain and compact it into a single life and you'll have Jesus. Our Lord is the brightness of his glory. He is also the express image of God's person. Jesus isn't just a reflection of God. He is the express image. He is the exact representation of God. In other words, he's not just similar in form, but he's of the same stuff. Jesus is like God, both in form and in substance. A stone statue might be similar in shape to its human object, but stone isn't flesh, is it? You see, this familiar statue of Hammer and Hank looks like Hank Aaron, but obviously it isn't. And yet Jesus was not only God's lookalike, he was of the same substance. What God is, Jesus is. Take a plastic apple. Appearance-wise, it resembles an apple, but just bite it, and you'll realize it's not. And yet take a bite out of Jesus, and you'll conclude he's not just God in shape, but also in substance. What God is, Jesus is. And Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but he's also its sustainer. Verse 3, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the atomic glue. You know, the nucleus of every atom is a mystery. Colum's law of physics teaches that like, that like charges repel. You put two positives together and they fight back against each other. Thus, what keeps the bundle of protons in every atom's nuclei from splitting apart? There must be something or someone stronger than the molecular mechanics that would drive them apart. Hebrews tells us what that something is. It's Jesus that upholds all things. He's the atomic glue. By the power of His Word, He keeps the universe from unraveling. And closer to home, it's through the power of His Word that keeps my life from unraveling, your life from unraveling too. And as if upholding all things were not a big enough job, Jesus also has a mission to accomplish. Verse 3 tells us that he came to save what he had always upheld. It says, for when he had by himself purged our sins. And I love this verse. Jesus purged our sins by himself. He needed no one else's help, no one else to blot out our sin. Jesus alone did the work of our salvation. I guess you could say our salvation is a one-man job. Without the Father's intervention or the assistance of angels 
or the stupefying narcotic the Romans tried to give him to deaden the pain. No performance-enhancing drugs for Jesus. Our Lord endured the cross. He purged our sin. He paid our debt, then conquered death all by himself. Aren't you proud of him? I am. And now God has rewarded and exalted Jesus. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. The angels hover around God's throne, but Jesus occupies a seat on God's throne. Apparently, God's throne's a dual seater. There's a place at God's right hand just for Jesus. See, his nature makes him better than the prophets, and his exaltation positions him above even the angels. You know, in Judaism, angelic beings were highly revered. They were practically worshipped. Since angels lived in God's presence and helped convey the law to Moses, they were often elevated to divine status. And it's not just the Jews who make this mistake. You know, people today in our pseudo-spiritual culture like to fixate on angels and angelic visitations. You know, they'd be better off concerned with obeying God. Everybody wants to be touched by an angel. But Hebrews says it's far better to be touched by Jesus. And verse 4 tells us why. For as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Here he quotes Psalm 2 verse 7. And he quotes again 2 Samuel 7 14. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now here are two Old Testament passages where God the Father addresses God the Son. The Bible teaches that Almighty God has a son. The doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is taught not just in the New Testament, but it's taught in the Old Testament as well. And remember the thinking in Hebrew culture. It was important that Jesus was called the Son of God. It it meant that he was equal to God. In Hebrew culture, the son of a goat is a goat. The son of a cow is a cow, the son of a man is a man, thus the son of God is God. That's how the Hebrews saw it. So when Jesus is called the son of God, it's ascribing to him equality with God. The point of the passage here is that angels are servants of God, but Jesus is his son. He's incredibly more preeminent. Nowhere is an angel ever referred to as a son or a child or an offspring of God. But Jesus is God's son. This puts him in a category all by himself, better than the angels. And then verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world. And remember the term firstborn doesn't always mean born first. Solomon was David's tenth son. But Psalm 89 verse 27 refers to him as firstborn. It was a title of privilege and authority in a family. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is firstborn, or he's the head, he's the heir of all God's creation. He goes on to write, when Jesus came into the world, the father said, 
Let all the angels of God worship him. On that first Christmas, not just the angels who appeared to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, but all the angels in every corner of the universe suddenly stopped in their tracks and worshiped Jesus. And here's the point. Why worship angels when angels worship Jesus? Angels are God's servants. They're his messengers, while Jesus is the hero of the angels. And then he says in verse 7, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, angels are heaven's helpers. Angels wait on God and the saints of God. They serve before the throne, but the Son, the Lord Jesus, sits on God's throne. He's telling us, why get excited about busboys when you can have a relationship with the boss? Verses 7 and 8 are great verses to remember the next time you talk to a Jehovah's Witness. When the misled missionaries knock on your door and claim that Jesus was the archangel Michael, here's some ammunition for you. Here, Jesus is placed in juxtaposition to angels. He's of a different order of being. He's greater than the angels. The psalmist says, To the Son, He, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice, God calls Jesus God. That's a strong proof text for the deity of Jesus. Show that verse to the cultist that knocks at your door. And then verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. I love this verse. It gives us a glimpse of the nature of Jesus while he was on earth. You know, Jesus was a passionate person. He was pretty fiery. He loved and he hated. He loved righteousness and he hated rebellion. And God anointed him, we're told. He doused him with an extraordinary measure of gladness. I believe Jesus was a fun person to be around. You know, some of the movies about Jesus, they portray him as a straight-laced, stoic, even somber kind of personality. Like his face was chiseled out of granite. But verse 9 tells us that he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. I believe Jesus was jovial and fun-loving and upbeat. He could tell a joke, something I apparently can't do very often, but he could. He could tell a great joke. I have no doubt he wore a smile. And then verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they shall be changed. The birth of a human being is its beginning, is that being's beginning. That's true of all humans but one. For Jesus' Bethlehem birth was not his beginning. He had pre-existed his birth. His birth was not his first rodeo. He had been to this earth before. The Bible teaches the pre-existence of Jesus. 
And here in verse 10, we're told, Jesus laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. Jesus played a role in the Father's work at creation. And he'll be at the Father's right hand in the end when the universe is packed up like an old coat. Amazingly, verse 12 sounds like it was written by a modern-day physicist. Astronomers tell us that we live in an expanding universe, that eventually the galaxies will slow down and the gravitational pull will take over, that the universe will collapse in on itself. Here the writer quotes Psalm 102, the heavens will fold up like a cloak. And yet of Jesus, he says, you are the same and your years will not fail. One day the physical universe will be no more, but Jesus will remain forever. Don't you want to trust Jesus? Don't you want to draw close to him? I do. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is what he said to Jesus, not angels. The father promises his son dominion over all his enemies. The angels know service, not conquest. Jesus alone holds the scepter and rules the universe. Again, he's showing us Jesus' superiority over the angels. And he says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? God never ordained angels to rule. Only one angel ever wanted to rule. And that was Lucifer, the devil. Dominion is man's destiny. The Bible promises that one day you and I will reign with Jesus. Angels were created to serve and minister to us, the heirs of salvation. To many people, verse 14 promotes the idea of guardian angels. You ever heard of this idea, guardian angels? That God assigns an angel to protect each believer? Psalm 91 verse 11 is another such verse. It says, He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Apparently, angels are tasked with protecting God's children. It's interesting that according to a 2008 Baylor University survey, 55% of all Americans said they believe that they've been protected from harm by a guardian angel. How many of you believe the same? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I get to heaven, I got a lot of things on my to-do list. But one thing that I definitely want to do is find my angel and thank the old boy for all the overtime he put in, keeping me out of a lot of scrapes. I believe in guardian angels. But realize I don't trust in angels. I trust in their boss. The angel who ministers to you doesn't love you. He's just following orders. It's the God of angel armies that's always by my side. God might send an angel to show his compassion, but it's Jesus who cares. Always remember, Jesus is better than angels. We need to trust Jesus. For the author warns us in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You know, it's hard to believe that the Hebrews were drifting from their faith in Christ. Jewish relatives and religion and tradition and superstition and 
social ties that entangled them to the community were all acting like a powerful undertow that was taking this tiny raft of believing Jews further from their hope in Christ. They were drifting. And it was time for them to wake up. He says, For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, and this word spoken through angels was the Old Testament law, In Acts 7, Stephen pointed out that the law of Moses was mediated through angels. And God had taken seriously this angel-delivered covenant. The Jews who violated it ended up dying in the wilderness, remember. But if God enforces the covenant conveyed by angels, and Jesus is the Lord of the angels, how much more seriously is he going to take the covenant instituted by Christ himself, our covenant of faith? This is why the writer warns us in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Our Savior and His salvation make for a relationship with God that the Old Testament Jews could only dream about. So if it were a crime to neglect the covenant given by angels, how much more serious is it to neglect the covenant that we've been given, that was created by Jesus? That's why we too need to stop our drifting. We need to hold close to Jesus. And he clarifies this great salvation of which he's speaking. He says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The superior gospel was delivered not by prophets, not by angels, but by the Lord himself and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Human eyewitnesses staked their integrity on their testimony of Jesus. Men and women were willing to die for the truth that they had seen and heard. And God too testified of the gospel. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The gospel of Jesus is a covenant on which God himself has placed his stamp of approval, signs and wonders and miracles, supernatural displays of the Holy Spirit accompanied the gospel wherever it spread, wherever it was preached. And nowhere does the Bible speak of these gifts and these miracles ceasing. Even today, the Spirit of God will confirm the truths of God through supernatural means. The author's point here is that the gospel of Jesus is superior to the Jewish covenant in every way. And if you can't neglect the lesser and escape its judgment, then how can you ignore the greater and expect any different? The Hebrews' initial step of faith was not enough. They had to continue in their faith. We too need to continue in our faith. We need to continue to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus lest we drift away. Well, in chapter 1, Jesus is superior to the angels. Why? Because he's God. Well, in chapter 2, he's greater than the angels because he's man. Angels aren't God, yet Jesus is, and no angel ever became a man, yet Jesus does. And here's why Jesus joined the ranks of humankind, beginning in verse 5. For God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, 
And here the author of Hebrews quotes the psalmist David in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 is a wonderful psalm. It was written by David when he was a young man. Picture a young shepherd boy, David. He's lying out in an open field under a night sky. He's curled up in his bedroll next to a dwindling fire. David gazes into the heavens. You know, out in the countryside under such conditions, away from the city lights, you can see 5,000 stars with the naked eye. With a four-inch telescope, you can see 2 million stars. And with the 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar in California, you can see a billion stars. Well, David is admiring God's handiwork, the beauty and the enormity of God's creation. He's pondering God when suddenly he's struck by an unexpected realization. God sits on the precipice in heaven. Who knows what vistas are within his sights? Yet what captivates God's attention? It suddenly hits David. While he's sitting on earth thinking about God, God is in heaven thinking about him. Amazing. David's blown away. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? God, why, why would you give us the time of day, let alone ponder over us and meditate on us? You have made man a little lower than the angels. You know, in terms of our physical compos- composition, human beings are not much. You can purchase the raw materials, the minerals and all that make up a human body with a $20 bill and still get change. Yet the value of a human being is not wrapped up in what he is, but in what God has intended him to be. As David says, you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Man alone was made in God's image and given dominion over nature, over animals and agriculture and angels until he sinned. Verse 8, For in that God put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, for the moment, in this time and place, the human race remains in its fallen state. And because of our sin, we don't see our greater glory. We don't see God's intentions for us. Augustine once said, man is a good thing spoiled. Will Rogers put it in a more humorous way. He said, God made man a little lower than the angels, and he's been getting a little lower ever since. Isn't that the truth? Today, the glory of mankind, both our origination and our coronation, what we were and will be, is almost completely hidden from view. Human life is no longer appreciated for what it is that we were made in God's image. This is why babies get aborted today. This is why 
wicked men attempt ethnic cleansing and genocide. It's because they've lost sight of human life and its value. View humankind apart from God's ultimate intentions and we're just another animal herd whose population needs to be thinned out from time to time. But there is one place where you get a glimpse of what men were really meant to be. Verse 9 tells us, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus is what all men were meant to be. Jesus chained himself to the plight of humans and died in our place in order to set us free to be all that God intended for us to be. That's why when you know Jesus then you can't help but to be pro-life. In Christ, you see the value of all men. You see God's image in them. You become a lover of human life. Verse 10 tells us, For it was fitting for him, that is God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect, that is complete through sufferings. You know, some truths aren't fully discerned until they're experienced. Take the sensation of pain. You know, I can read a scientific explanation of pain. I can hear descriptions of pain. I can even observe someone in great pain. But what do I really know about pain until I've tasted it myself? And for this reason, the invincible God made himself vulnerable. Jesus drank the cup of suffering. He bore the pain of our sin in his own body. He wanted to experience our dilemma from an insider's point of view. The word captain in verse 10 can be translated trailblazer or pioneer. Jesus blazed a new trail. He broke new ground. He established a new way to live. Rather than bypass suffering, Jesus was the first to be glorified through it. He brought life from death. He snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. He pioneered a new way. He became invincible by becoming vulnerable. And now Jesus stands on the glory side and he invites us to follow him. Will we surrender our will, even suffer for his sake? If we're vulnerable, he'll ensure that we overcome. He says, for both he who sanctifies And those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is the sanctifier. He's working today to make us holy and pure. We are the sanctified. But amazingly, he considers us one. The king of creation calls us his brothers. That's amazing. You know, the whole time I was growing up, I wanted a big brother. In my family, I was the big brother. And I saw the benefits of having a big brother. When Ken, my little runt brother, got to high school, the coach already knew his name before he ran the first wind sprint. He had a ride to school from day one. Kids who didn't want to mess with me didn't pick on him. 
A kid brother has it easier than a big brother. I would have loved to have had someone older and stronger and wiser who would have looked out for me and taught me the ropes. Oh, but after about 20 plus years, I got my big brother. The day I pledged my life to Jesus, Jesus became my big brother. And now I've got him made. I got a big brother. God now knows my name because of Jesus. Jesus carries me wherever he's headed. And you better not pick on me if you don't want to mess with Jesus. Sometimes big brothers pick on their siblings, but not Jesus. He picks us up. I mean, even those of you that are big brothers, you know how it is when your little brother's around you and he starts acting goofy and silly and stuff. I mean, you're a little embarrassed, aren't you? Well, Jesus doesn't feel that way. Even if you act goofy, even if you do stupid stuff that embarrasses him, Jesus still loves you. He still wants to be your big brother. We're told in verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus always wants you by his side. That's amazing. Saying, and Hebrews 2 verse 12 is a quote from Psalm 22 verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Notice where Jesus is hanging out today. He is in the assembly of the church. He is with us here this morning singing praise to the Father. This is why you need to start taking your worship seriously. You wouldn't be lethargic, just sort of lamely mouthing the words. You know, maybe kind of going half-masked, you know, on the old hands, you know. and You wouldn't take such a nonchalant approach if Jesus was standing right there next to you during the worship. Well, he is. He is in the assembly next to you. He is standing next to us singing God's praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. Jesus is trusting the Father as he intercedes for us. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus took on our mortality so that we could share in his immortality. And that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus took on a human body to die for all humans. And ironically, through his death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, thus freeing us from the fear of death. On the cross, Jesus stripped Satan of death's power. Today, the grim reaper bows to Jesus. The tombstone has now become our stepping stone to glory. Did you hear about the man that was suffering from severe headaches? He tried aspirin and Tylenol and Motrin, all the extra strength stuff. Nothing worked. Finally, he went to the doc. The doctor did a brain scan, did some x-rays. A couple of days later, the man went back in for the results. The doctor announced, he says, man, he says, I'm sorry, I've got some awful news for you. Your condition is terminal. I'm afraid you're not going to make it. 
the patient, he, he was pretty shook up. He said, Doc, say it ain't so. The doctor said, no, I'm afraid the results are conclusive. There's no doubt. The man asked, he said, well, how much time do I have left? The doctor answered, 10. The patient wanted to know. He said, well, 10 what? 10 years? 10 months? 10 days? The doctor continued, 9, 8, <laughs> 7, 6. <laughs> hey, like that patient, unless the Lord returns, hey, we're all going to die. And it's the fear of death that haunts us most, is it not? Like an ominous cloud hovering over a picnic. Even if it never rains, the mere threat of it spoils the fun. That's the way it is with death. It's the fear of death that steals away the joys of life. The thrill of a baby's birth is tempered by the realization that one day that little body you lay in the bassinet will be laid in a grave. The joy of a wedding is dimmed by the inevitable separation that death will one day create. Death is the great spoiler. For centuries, the fear of death ruled the hood. Its tyranny went unchecked until Jesus moved on to the block. We're told that through his death, Jesus destroyed Satan's power. The Greek word destroyed means to render useless. Jesus declawed the tiger of death. He stripped death of its fear elements. Jesus paid sin's penalty and united us to God. Death no longer means the cessation of life. It no longer robs us of what matters. In Christ, death is no longer our punishment for sin. It's now our graduation to greater blessing and to higher glory and into the eternal life of God's presence. And then verse 16 tells us, For indeed... He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. God gave blessings to Jesus and those who follow him that he would have never doled out unto angels. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. One reason God's son became a man was to qualify as a priest. See, men are appointed priests. And Jesus came to be our great high priest. The Latin word for priest or pontiff means literally bridge builder. Did you know Jesus built history's longest bridge? He built a bridge that extends from heaven to earth, from God to man. And God had two requirements for a good priest. He had to be faithful to God and merciful to man. A priest had to represent God truthfully and boldly, and yet he also had to be empathetic toward man's frailties. You know, most people go to one extreme or the other. Oh, they'll stand up for truth, but then they're so judgmental toward people. Or they sympathize with people, but they soften God's standard and ignore the truth. Not Jesus. He was both faithful and merciful. He was both. And Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The term propitiation, it means a place of mercy. The Hebrew word is kaporeth, which means mercy seat. The mercy seat was the gold lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. 
in the temple precincts. Over the mercy seat, God's glory rested. This was where the priest applied the blood and atoned for sin. God's truth and his mercy kissed and were reconciled at the mercy seat. It was the one place where God's righteousness was satisfied and his compassion was realized. And today, Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the one place in the world today where sinful men can find mercy. And then verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Here's another reason Jesus became a man. So he could understand how to give aid to us. What angel knows what it's like to tire or get sleepy or feel pain or bleed or be rejected by a friend? These are things angels know nothing about. They've never been where you're at. They've never walked in your shoes. Yet Jesus was tempted in all these ways. And why? So he could help us. When we encounter those same temptations, he knows he's been there, been there, done that. The words able to aid is a translation of the Greek phrase, which means to run to the cry of a child. This is how Jesus responds to our needs. He knows our trials. He knows the hardships we experience. We have a high priest who helps us where we hurt. Realize Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than any other way, friends. And so, don't drift. Don't drift from Jesus. Keep believing. Hold fast. We'll learn in Hebrews that Jesus is sufficient for our every need. Let's strengthen our faith. Father, we thank you for your word.